So what we have to understand in the kingdom is what we should actually be seeking first because what we seek first is what we're going to order our life around. And where you're going to see this the biggest, and I think I might have even shared this last week, where you're going to see this really, um, really prominently is in the idea of believers getting free. You know, so the Lord wants us to walk in freedom. So if I, if I, so when I'm trying to walk in, in freedom, what do I seek first? Do I seek to change my behavior? Do I seek to stop looking at pornography or stop overeating or stop being angry or whatever is the thing in my life that I'm trying to get free of? Do I order my life around the problem or do I order my life around the solution? Right. And so the principle we want to really talk about tonight is what we should actually be seeking first. Because many times we're chasing after the byproduct when if we would just, in a lot of ways, chase after the right thing, we'll get the thing we're chasing for as the byproduct or as the result of our, 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 what, we're, what we're seeking being in the right order. So, Father, this evening, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and help teach us the Word. We, help you to, we ask that you help us to come and to write it in our hearts, make it practical, help it become something that we live out of and we practice and apply. And we, Lord, we pray that you bring revelation into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the reason why we want to talk about emotional intelligence is for several reasons. The first reason is that we want the body of Christ to be thoroughly equipped in every area of your life. We absolutely, you know, Daniel, I think about Daniel and how he lived with a spirit of excellence. And you and I want to carry a spirit, a spirit of excellence in every area of our life. So what that means practically is in the area of your relationships, we want you to have the highest quality relationships possible. And, and as I was saying to the class earlier today, our relationships can only be as healthy as the unhealthiness we bring to them. So understand that all of us want healthy relationships, but the greatest risk to that is the unhealthiness I bring into it. And so what we have to understand is is as we are being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ, that has to have an impact in every area of our lives, right? And so um, let me give you a few statistics because who doesn't love a good statistic, right? So 40 years the study lasted, and what the study sought to find out was, can you, are there predictors that you could look to that say a person is either going to have a high-quality life or a low-quality life. So when we talk about quality, we mean are they going to be able to have successful relationships? Are they going to have successful marriages? Are they going to have successful careers? Oh, yeah, pass them out, sorry. Um, are, they going to be able to, are they going to be able to really just function and be functional in life? And so after the 40-year study... What they found out was that the biggest indicators of a successful life were being able to productively handle frustration 
and control your emotions, and thirdly, get along with people. And they found out that in the next study that they found out and they followed 80 different brilliant scientists over a period of 40 years and they discovered that how smart you are intellectually has virtually no bearing on the quality of your life. So what that means is I can write out equations on a chalkboard, yet that has relatively no impact on the quality of my relationships with other people. So what they began to understand is that just like we can have an intellectual intelligence, and the way that we measure that is by IQ or the intelligence quotient, they really realized that you and I can develop a set of social skills or a set of emotional skills that are the determination of how well we're going to succeed in life. Now think about that. If they found out in the studies that the three biggest determination on the quality of your life is that you learn how to handle frustration or all of your emotions well, if you learn how to control your emotions, and then the third one, which is the biggest one, you learn how to actually have productive relationships with other people, that generally none of those hinge upon how smart you are. So what we understood was is that largely people are underdeveloped. When, uh, as part of the leadership class, the students will get this at Maranatha, but I teach a, uh, another section of that on what we call active listening. What, what reflective listening actually is. And what they found out is that when it comes down to listening, that, that our ability to actually listen. So you realize two things, not to get totally derailed here, but we hear with our ears, right? But we listen with the heart. That's why you can hear, but never really listen. And so the idea is that when we talk about listening, that just by virtue of the fact of the culture that we live in, they actually did a couple other studies that said, if you have your cell phone near you, and David Santiago can uh, relate to this because he and I had met recently and my phone kept going off constantly. But just, and it doesn't even have to go off. People don't even have to be texting you. But just because you have your phone near you, your ability to listen goes down lots. That's because your body and your soul, rather, your psyche anticipates being distracted, and so it's a self-fulfilling po uh, prophecy, so to speak, that you live distracted just because you have a cell phone near you. It doesn't even have to go off. So understanding that in emotional intelligence, it's starting to understand that one of the things that drove our emotional intelligence way down is that we started losing the capacity to really listen. The biggest problem that I find most of the time is that it's not that people talk too much, it's that they don't listen enough. Now my, my wife will tell you that I'm an expert in that, not because I'm a great listener, but because I'm not. And she reminds me quite regularly that I need to put on active listening to the point where my wife knows I'm always thinking and pondering something else and that when she really needs my attention, we'll say, Derek, I need active listening. 
And that's our keyword that pulls me out of passive listening and into active listening. So you have my permission at any time to call me into active listening. And some of you will, I'm sure of it. The last thing, number three, is a study of retired NFL players found out that emotional intelligence was actually able to predict 62% of the variation in life success. In other words, the NFL started understanding the idea that when an NFL player started to retire, what was going to set them up for a, for a successful retirement? They were able to understand that the higher their emotional intelligence was, the more likely they were going to succeed and go on to thrive after an NFL career. And then lastly, CareerBuilder did a study, and they discovered that out of all the hiring managers that they interviewed, 2,600 to be exact, 71% of those hiring managers said that we will value emotional intelligence over intellectual intelligence every single time. And the reason why is a person who has a high level of emotional intelligence, they learn and know that they tend to be happier employees. They deal with change well. They are able to get along with their coworkers, and they can learn just about anything. And it's more riskier to take a person who has experience with a low emotional quotient than it is to take someone with no experience and has a high intellectual quotient or emotional quotient, and they'll usually hire them just about every single time because you can teach people with a high EQ just about anything. So now let me ask you the, the rhetorical question this evening. Why do we want to raise your emotional quotient? Because ultimately, we want you to succeed in every area of your life. Absolutely. We, Christians need to have, believers need to have the best relationships in the world. The Bible says that they'll know that we are Christians by our love, so we need to be the embodiment of love. And so, let me, let me do a couple things. I'm going to jump right into this. Last week, we talked about 1.2, the emotional intelligence domains. And we said that there's basically five areas that if you will increase your skills in these areas, your emotional intelligence will go up. So self-awareness is about knowing your emotions and processing and recognizing what emotion you're feeling at any given time. And then it's recognizing when those feelings occur. That sounds like it's Joe basic, but you do realize how many people live unaware of what's going on emotionally and how they're impacting other people. You realize that most of us don't even take the time to sit down and even think about and consider what we're feeling and why we're feeling that. And it, that is important. In the early 80s, it was really in vogue in the charismatic movement to downplay emotions. And, and it was, oh, that's soulish all the time. And, and, it, and it carried over into things like worship. We don't worship the worship. We don't worship emotions and all that. And so for a long period of time in the charismatic movement, it was we downplayed emotions entirely and we did that to our own detriment because God created emotions. So what we said last week is that emotions aren't a guide, they're a gauge. And so we can understand emotional intelligence and we can process our emotions and be aware of our emotions because just like when you touch a hot burner and you feel pain, your emotions feel things that should be getting your attention so you, so you start looking at something you should be paying attention to. So if I'm depressed, 
I don't sit around eating a gallon of ice cream and just watching crazy movies. I start to ponder through why I'm discouraged and why I'm depressed because something in my soul is trying to tell me something, right? Number two, self-awareness is about uh, also self-control. Really what self-control is, it's managing your mood so your mood doesn't manage others. Learning to respond and not react. Most of us are reactionary, and reactions are those emotional hijackings when your emotions just kind of take over and they get crazy and you do things you regret and you say things you regret. But what we want to do is come into self-control so that we can productively understand what we're feeling, process through that, and then not use our emotions as the basis to control or victimize other people. All right? Number three, self-motivation, putting your feelings into perspective. And this is a biggie in this, in this culture because a high emotional intelligence means I can motivate myself. Uh, Psalms, what was it, says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. He had, believe it or not, with all the whining David did, he had a really high emotional intelligence. He was able to say, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Oh, yeah, wait a minute, put your hope in God. So he didn't stay in the funk. He understood exactly what he needed to do to get himself out of it. So understanding that uh, feeling something you know, negative isn't wrong. It's what I do with it, right? And so self-motivation is about understanding the dynamics that are in my life and motivating myself to press through them. I know, I know leaders that in order to stay motivated, they read one success story a week. And the reason why they do that is they continue to understand that their worst enemy is their own negative self-image. That they realize that the, the worst voice in their life is the one that continually plays in their head that says, you can't, and this challenge in your life is not overcomable. And so we get discouraged when we start to realize that while many things in life are hard, they're not unconquerable. I can't remember if I shared this last week, so I'm sorry if I uh, repeated it, but I went to a conference one time, and there was uh, a millionaire there by the name of Peter Daniels. He was in one of the top five at the time millionaires in Australia, and he's probably one of the most polished, elegant speakers I'd ever heard, yet he told the story as a young boy growing up that he had such a severe speech impediment that he could hardly put two sentences together without stuttering like for, for moments and moments at a time. The teachers, when he went to school, got him to a place where they were so frustrated that they said, he's just not even teachable. We, watched, we can't even do it. The best you can hope for is to put him in some kind of learning disability class or whatever else. And so anyway, his mom wasn't having any of it. She realized that maybe Peter had a challenge that others didn't, and she began to seek to figure out how to, how to address that challenge in his life. And so you know what he did? She got herself a tape recorder, and she started with the A's in the dictionary. She went through every word, pronounced it in the tape recorder, and read every definition. And one by one, he learned how to pronounce and understood the definitions of all those words. And the man that we heard speaking at that conference in Tulsa was probably one of the most elegant. He should have easily been on TEDx, and maybe he is. I haven't followed him through the years. But I'm saying that he was a very powerful speaker. And they asked him, well, what should we, you know, they did a Q&A with him. And he began to say that all it really took was for him to understand that, yes, maybe he had challenges in his life, others didn't, 
But it was up to him to motivate himself to push through and actually make something of himself, and boy, did he ever. You know what he did at the time? I don't know where he's doing now, but at the time, he was loaning money to third world countries. So that's self-motivation. And then four is self-awareness, social awareness. This is a really big one in even community settings. We want to intentionally be aware of other people. So it's learning how to understand some of the social cues. Now, I don't for a moment tell, you know, put forth to you that I'm the absolute expert. My wife will tell you that I've had some colossal foot-in-the-mouth experiences that are, I don't know, I, they're, they're hard to beat. And so I've made some really big mistakes in this area. But what we want to do is grow our awareness of other people and learn how to relate to them and learn how to read social cues. Ever been in that moment? And suddenly the chill hits the room and all you're thinking to yourself is, I feel so awkward right now, I just want to run. And so sometimes we do that. And then like there's been times even like I just can't, I, I just like even, you know, every once in a while, you know, we'll pop on the TV or something and something awkward and I just can't stay and listen. Like I feel so awkward and weird about it, you know, because you just, oh. So what we want to do is come out of that social isolation and become more aware, more relationally aware of the people around us. Uh, that even leads into things like not saying, you know, on some level things that we've always said but that are racially hurtful to other people. That's not political correctness. That's, that's understanding that we want to love people and want, don't want to do anything that would insult who they are or where they came from. That's Christianity, folks. Um, and then the last one is social skills, learning how to steward your relationships, how to work through conflicts that relationships, and then it's working with others. Art Katz wrote a book called True Fellowship, and in it he says that true fellowship is God's most exquisite form of suffering. And the reason why he said that is because when we come into relationship with others, we are so selfish to the core in our carnality that without Christ, it's miraculous that we can even find a way to actually be selfless enough to have relationships with other people. That in us, we want to make it about us. And so in relationship, in true fellowship, in koinonia, the place that where we are supposed to have kingdom-level relationships with one another... We have to understand that the greatest part of the sanctification in your life happens through the people you go to church with. Because you don't get an opportunity to mature in love until you get the opportunity to choose to love. All right? So now, talking about the most excellent way, I want to tell you one thing about emotional intelligence that I didn't tell you last week is to, to turn a phrase and to steal it from Barry Nichols, there is a dark underbelly to emotional intelligence. And that underbelly is simply this, that I can develop my emotional intelligence to a level where I can use it to control and manipulate other people. So my goal here is not to equip controllers and to empower narcissists and to empower people to see, man, this is great strategy for how I can wreck people emotionally. What I want to offer to you then is that if we first seek to love 
the Bible way and the God way, we will get emotional intelligence as the byproduct. So let me make this statement, and it's number four. Love ensures that we don't use emotional intelligence to control others. And so I can tell you that while I can become emotionally intelligent and not love, I don't believe I can actually mature in love without becoming emotionally intelligent in the process. So rather than encouraging you to focus on matrices and all these other things, I think it's helpful to give you an awareness of emotional intelligence. But I think what is most helpful is to show you the more excellent way. All right? So let me revisit really quickly the examined life is really the counterpart in the kingdom to, this, to being self-aware. I'll read Romans 12, 3. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So being a self-aware is understanding and relating and living in reality and not delusions of grandeur about who you are. You know where you want to see some of the biggest delusions? They actually named it. Uh, and I can't for the life of me remember the name. But um, there is an actual clinical condition where people actually believe they can sing and they can't. And they show up on America's Idol and, and, and The Voice every week. Yeah, there is actually a clinical, and I can't remember, it's, the, it's, two, it's named after two men. But there is an example in that, that for some reason they believe they can actually sing and can't. And they're literally getting ready to try to go on national TV and can't sing. And so what we understand that in mature love, what it will cause me to do is to learn how to look at myself accurately and perceive and to not judge myself more highly than I ought to. There's a gauge that allows me to see realistically. Now, I'm not talking about identity. I'm not talking about who I am in Christ. I'm talking about whether or not I can sing or not. I'm talking about whether or not I can do things I should be in reality. And even in emotionally is understanding and, and being able to assess myself correctly. You guys follow me? Number two... The self-controlled life is easily, in the Bible, translates to the spirit-controlled life. Because, yes, we're called to self-control. Absolutely. There's a couple of scriptures there that will tell you that. But 2 Timothy 1.7 says, this is my favorite, I quote this all the time, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and my translation says in the net, self-control. So again, we want to be sober, we want to be alert, we want to be self-controlled, but beyond self-control, we want to be spirit-controlled. And what spirit-controlled really is, if I were to say to you, what is the measure of maturity? What makes a mature believer? At the top of that list for me is how well you obey Holy Spirit and give Him first place in your life. So the, the idea is, yes, I want self-control, but self-control by itself is just simply behavior modification. I don't want to modify my behavior. I want to change my heart. I want God to come in and absolutely transform so that the behaviors attached with the old state of my heart are no longer present. 
So as believers, we can't spend our time. Jesus didn't come to modify your behavior. You realize that, right? That's the byproduct of the transformed life, right? So lastly, self-motivation. What I really want more than that is I want to be God-motivated. And an example of that is Colossians 3.23. Whatever you are doing... Work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for the people. Your translation says, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. So because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward, serve the Lord Christ. So yes, motivation to get up and read my Bible, motivation to pray, motivation to give, motivation to serve, motivation to excel and be a faithful steward at my employer's work, to do a good job, to excel. But beyond that, the greater motivation than self is to please the one who called me. The, the greater motivation to self is to, as Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father do, and I only speak what I hear the Father say, and my bread is to do the will of the one who sent me. So the greatest motivation in the life of a believer is to simply please God, not fulfill self. And then lastly, becoming others aware, and this is, this is such a good one, is really the, 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 the believer's cure for being socially aware. I don't want to just be socially aware. I want to go to the next level and be others aware. And there's a little difference. Romans 12, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, verse 9 says that love must be without hypocrisy. That we should abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness and honoring one another. So the standard for the believer isn't just to be socially aware, it's to honor and love people. So I can have great emotional intelligence, but never walk in love, and without love, I am nothing. And so... 11, we don't want to lag in zeal, but we should be enthusiastic in spirit serving the Lord. 12, rejoicing in hope, enduring in suffering, persisting in prayer. And in 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, blessing those who persecute you and blessings and, and not cursing. And in 15, and this is the biggie, the ultimate in being others aware is learning how to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The ultimate in others' awareness is learning how to feel and empathize and laugh and cry with a fellow believer or a fellow person in life. You have reached a pinnacle of emotional intelligence when you can, in fact, take the time to process another person's pain or their joy. And then lastly, don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. And if possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. And so the idea of others' awareness really comes down to, in the biblical standard, it's not just being others aware. It's loving others deeply and sincerely without hypocrisy. 
So the standard of a believer is great. We want high emotional intelligence, but what we really want is to love well and to love right. And so what compels me to want to raise my ability and the quality of my relationships is because I want to love you well. I was telling the class that as a part of my own mission statement, you know, for my own life and the way that I live my life, there is not an appointment that I go to, there is not a person that I talk to where in my mind I am asking the question, how can I love this person well, how can I make them feel loved, and how can I ensure that when they walk away from me, I leave them better than when they first encountered me? Because in kingdom-level leadership, we talk a lot about fathering and spiritual fathering and all that, but understand all leadership in the kingdom fathers. And the reason why it does that is because God isn't raising up employees and servants and slaves. We lead in such a way because our leadership grows and matures sons who are inheritors. So all leadership in the kingdom is called to bring forth sons and inheritors for the fathers, not diminish them as sons and turning them into slaves for pharaohs. And so what we have to understand then is, is that in love, all leadership has as the basis in the kingdom the outflow of love toward people. Leadership is illegal in the kingdom if it doesn't pass through love first. All right, so now let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to understand something really interesting about love, and I'm going to just walk through a couple of uh, passage, a couple of things that Paul said here, but here's the biggest thought that I want to present to you right away is that there is something really odd in the mindsets of people that I find absolutely fascinating. And it suggests to me, and again, maybe this isn't a completely fair test, because after all, it was Facebook, so we know all about that, right? But I, over the course of the last couple weeks, I would randomly post, I think the first post that I made was something like, um, uh, the quality of our relationships are only going to be as good as the unhealthiness that I tolerate in them. Okay, and so again, I got, I got comments from, well, we're called to just, you know, uh, and then so the, the conversation started, and I said, we are, I made something to the effect of, we are not called to tolerate emotional abuse. You would not believe how many believers actually thought that turn the other cheek means that loving you means I should take your pain. So in the process of that, in talking and dialoguing through that, you started to understand that there's something in our DNA that makes us feel like we should stand in the way of the abuser and be abused for Christ. When there's another side to love that's just as interesting and just as relevant, and it's the other side of tolerance, which says that real love corrects and doesn't tolerate. I can't find anywhere where I'm called to tolerate. 
What I am called to do, and we're going to read it here in a few moments, is be patient, be kind, all those things. But it's interesting that we identify more with avoiding and tolerating than we do confronting. Love tells me how to confront. It never tells me not to. All right? So we're going to talk about that word. So here's, what, here's the setup. First of all, in 5.9, he says, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh, that's a, sorry, that's a typo. Um, so here's the thing about that. And I'm going to just take a little side thing here real quickly. I told you in a previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You guys thinking about that for a minute? Now that letter is lost to us. But think about this, that not everybody, actually contrary to modern churchianity, not everybody has the right to participate in ecclesia. Paul is actually writing a letter and says in this passage of Scripture some, that, that you should not even associate with the sexually immoral as it comes to fellowship among the believers. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, he reveals why he writes the letter to the Corinthian church and he says, Love, I urge you brothers and sisters by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to agree together to end your divisions and to be united by the same mind and purpose. The biggest problem with community and church is we bring a carnal understanding to community. So understanding that we can't have community and aren't really having community because we're having coffee at Starbucks. We can only really have true community when the kingdom and the culture of the king has arrived and it becomes the basis of what draws us together. If the king isn't prominent and his culture that he brings with him in his kingship isn't the basis for all community, all we have is a social club. We don't have anything that honors the king and his kingdom in our relationships. So understanding this, this letter was written in response to a report from Chloe's household that was talking about problems in the Corinthians church. So, so you see uh, 8 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 14 all deal with different divisions that Paul's attempting to correct. So the first thing we have to understand about the letter to the Corinthians is he wrote that letter to confront something. And in the mid middle of his confrontation, he actually inserts 1 Corinthians 13 in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And what we don't realize, if all we do is read that chapter, that 1 Corinthians 13 was written as a confrontation. So, does God call me to pacifism or avoidance when it comes down to understanding that tolerance is really the simple definition of tolerance is understanding that something is wrong, inherently wrong, and rather than deal with it, I leave it unchallenged. I don't really ever see any, any place where I'm called to tolerate 
sinful behavior. I don't, I don't see where I'm called in the name of tolerance to tolerate someone who's abusing another person, right? I don't see where Jesus calls me to be the recipient of emotional abuse and by tolerating, meaning leaving it unchallenged, because what I tolerate passively, I'm in agreement with actively. So then understanding that, we get down to Paul is dealing with, in chapters 12, the whole idea behind those, that, those passages are the divisions over spiritual gifts. And so what was happening is rather than celebrating the gifts, the people who had gifts started disrespecting others, and some had become prideful and dismissive of the gifts of others. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, but you should be eager for the greater gifts, and now... I show you a way that is beyond comparison, the net, the net version says. Your version probably says, and now I show you a more excellent way. So let's talk about that excellent way. My favorite passage, and I'm only going to read you the part of it, is 1 Corinthians 13. But if I do not have love, I'm nothing. And what I would like to submit to you this evening is that in all of what is happening in Scripture, all of the stuff that you see, the most, one of the most dominant themes is how to love the body well. And my concern, one of my greatest concerns at this moment in time is that we've become so consumer-driven in church that we really stopped loving one another and start finding practical ways to truly love one another in the body. What would happen, sorry, I'm going to take a detour. What would happen, I mean, just in the most practical way, if everyone rolled in here on Sunday morning with the thought, I'm going to find somebody to share my life with and take them out to lunch today after church? What would happen, and how many people have we ever stopped to think that walk in the doors of this building and not one person says a word to them. Because we're so focused on coming in and doing our thing, going in and going out and becoming a great audience for whoever's speaking that day, but yet we don't give a lot of thought to how do I love the people sitting next to me well? Because that's what real community is. I had a person come up to me, uh, hey, man, when are we going to get together? I love food. All like I do too, can't you tell? But, but again, I understood his heart. He's lonely, wanted somebody to talk to him. And again, who doesn't love food? But what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to start the Heart of the Father dinner club. I'm trying to say, because good Lord, I need to hit, I need to hit the, the fitness thing over there next door for sure. But what I'm trying to say to you is when we made church all about what's happening in the pulpit, we stopped functioning as the body. And so, loving well, really realize, I'm so busy, I don't have time. Then you're too busy. That doesn't honor the Lord. You've got to change something in your life. Because what we're really going to stand before the Lord and talk about, He's going to ask us how well we loved. I'm convinced of it. And then if I said, well, I love my husband and my kids well, great, but then you didn't really understand a dimension of Christ that you won't recognize, and that's love, learning how to love his body. 
And so in breaking all of this down, there's three types of love. You've heard this erotic love, eros or eros, isn't even mentioned in the Bible, but it is still a Greek form of the word love. The other two you do see, and the one we're most interested about is agape. I'm sure all of us have at least heard several messages on agape love, hopefully. But we understand that agape love is really, in, the, in its essence, outward, and it's the concern for the well-being of others, and it's the God kind of love. I mean, I could break that down. We could spend the next three hours talking about agape love. But what I want to understand this tonight is that breaking it down, love is patient. And what that means is, in a practical way, is that in my patience, I don't get irritated when the person next to me is really irritating. It's learning how to love you in spite of how irritating you are. Um, but it's learning how to develop because in my end, I'm willing to experience a little bit of irritation and learning how not to overreact and show some emotional intelligence by being willing to love and to be patient and to actually um, to not tolerate not go unchallenged, but have some patience while people are working on their maturity. Love is patient. What we're really hearing is love is tolerant. No, no, no. Take that out of your vocabulary. Because love corrects lovingly, but what we're really saying when we don't correct and when we don't speak the truth in love is we love ourselves and our feelings more than the other person. Because the reason why you're not confronting is you love yourself more now that's a hard pill to swallow and we're going to talk about the word confront here in a minute but what I want to say to you is that as believers we have to be so driven and so encountered by the love of God that we want to love well and loving well is correcting Jeremiah says two of those out of that one verse are negatives for Exhortation is the one good one, but the other part is rebuke and correction, right? So it's two to one, I think it is. So again, as believers, we should learn to love correction, and an emotionally intelligent person can receive it. And we should want correction, because without it, we don't grow. And so again, loving, being patient is not tolerating, it's being patient while the person's growing, but challenging them to grow. Love is kind. This really does have to do with works. It's just like patience is restraint. Kindness is the opposite. It's active. And it's really about, it's more along the lines of find a need and fill it, that kind of thing. It's practically reaching out and being aware of other people and asking yourself, how can I show them kindness? It's real because I really love them. Uh, not envious is an interesting zelu related to the word zeal, and it can actually be a positive or a negative, and it's an intense desire for something that belongs to someone else. Like I find myself constantly being jealous and envious and really wanting and coveting that German shepherd sitting in the back. Because he's such a cool dog. No, I'm just kidding. But what we want to do is we don't want to be envious, and we don't want to be jealous. We see that a lot 
when someone gets promoted and we think we deserve what they got. And do you know that every time you step into envy when someone else gets promoted and you don't, you are demonstrating that the posture of your heart doesn't believe that God is good and that he's not good enough to promote you. So when I feel envy, I should immediately be looking toward there's something in my heart that doesn't trust God. Right? And so again, love doesn't envy. And the fact that I experience emotion as an, envy as an emotion doesn't mean necessarily that I'm a wicked sinner. It's what that I do with it when I discover it. I should look internal and say, why am I being envious? And I'm going to come to a place where I'm going to recognize that either something in me doesn't really believe God's as good as he says he is, right? Or for some other reason, he is as good as he says he is, but I'm just the exception to the rule, which is what I believe for a lot of years of my life. So what we understand then is that envy and love are like oil and water. They can't really uh, uh, dwell together. They can't mix or mingle. They stay separate. Love doesn't brag. You know what the opposite of bragging is? Instead of building yourself up and lifting yourself up, you build other people up. It's interesting that when I, when I self-promote myself, that there's something in it that's antithetical to love, yet when I attempt to do the same thing to others, it's loving. Now, I'm not talking about in a false way. I'm not talking about in a carnal way. I'm saying that when in my heart I'm seeking to lift others up and to build them up, they say that in, in, in any kind of situation, we should be really quick to brag about other people and to, and to celebrate their accomplishments. And I believe that. Man, it should be a party around here when people get saved. Come on now. Or when some of you experience some great triumphs in life, we should celebrate that. Man, we should always be looking for reasons to throw parties around here. Because what's happening is we are taking that opportunity to allow our love to be developed by being others-focused instead of self-centered. There's something in that that grows me up emotionally. Love's not puffed up, my translation says. Agape seeks to build up, not puff up. And then the other part of that, the antithesis really of love is not being rude or being rude. In other words, being rude is, is be, behaving in an ugly, indecent, unseemly, unbecoming manner. It's the opposite of proper behavior. And man, how many of you have known some rude people? Raise your hands. How many of you are rude people? Oh, look at you. See, God bless you for being honest. No. The point of that is that there is no license for rudeness, right? What I'm focused on, if I'm going to be self-focused, what I should focus on is my love quotient. What I, what I should spend energy understanding and thinking through and allowing the Lord to transform my heart so that I love well because it's impossible for me to love well and not really reflect and show emotional intelligence. Right? All right, so love is not self-serving. Love doesn't insist on its own way at the expense of another's. Love, is, love and selfishness are mutually ex exclusive. So here's the real dilemma in conflict resolution. You know why you can't resolve a conflict? Here you go. It's because one party is being self-centered 
And what they end up doing is they're not willing to move beyond self-seeking because there really is no reason why all conflicts can't be resolved in the kingdom. The only reason they can't be resolved is the unresolved posture that I have in my heart that either won't allow me to forgive or allow me to consider others better than myself on the other end of the conflict. Now, I know that sounds really, um, what's the word I want? That sounds really idealistic. But what I'm telling you, when you have people in the kingdom that are truly motivated by love, there should be no reason why we can't resolve every conflict. The reason why we can't is somewhere someone's not walking in love. Now, unfortunately, that does happen. Divorce is a good example of that. Sometimes it just can't happen. So, but in my heart, Every single time, I'm going to tell you right now, in some respects, I am a little selfish because here it is. There's not one person on this planet that I haven't forgiven. But here's the dilemma. The moment someone does something to hurt me or offend me or whatever it is, they get instantaneously forgiven. What you do or don't do has no part to play in that. And the reason why I forgive is because my heart can't afford to let you stay in my debt. So again, whether you repent, whether you see you're wrong, all that, I cannot afford to live an offense. And I'm going to tell you this, and hopefully this you know, isn't going to really kind of just shake you up, but here's the thing. You have John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. A little few chapters later, you see him at the River Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He baptizes Jesus, a sign and a wonder. This Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind that John knows who Jesus is. Yet a few chapters later, some history happens. He ticks off the wrong people. He winds up in jail. And we know that eventually he loses his head. But here one day you see Jesus reclining, talking to the disciples, and along comes a disciple of John, and he says, John sent me to ask you, Jesus, are you the Christ, or should we look for another? Now how did we get from, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, to, are you the Christ, should we look for another? And Jesus says something similar to the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Now you go and tell John to decide for himself. And what does he say to the other disciples? Blessed are you if you're not offended of me. And so what did we learn? That, that offense will cause you to abort your revelation of who Jesus is. You cannot afford to stay offended. You cannot afford to stay hurt. Nor can you see that as optional. You do not get the option to forgive. It is absolutely a requirement that you forgive every single time. Now, I'm not trying to bash you up or beat you up, and I'm telling you that, that forgiveness is a process. Absolutely. I can forgive cognitively, and my emotions have to catch up with the decision that I've made. And forgiveness is a process. Grieving is a process. You need to feel the pain that you're feeling. You don't need to ignore it. You need to feel it, because the only way to get healed is to go through it and not try to distract yourself from it.
But what I'm saying then, just kind of wrap this up, is that what we have to understand then is that love brings us to a place where we want to forgive and we want to live the unoffendable life because my life depends upon it and my love for you depends upon it. And so again, where there are controversies, where there are, uh, man, in my day when I first got started, it was the worship wars. We were mad that we stopped singing hymns all the time and we started singing worship choruses. And then there was the, the wars that got fought over the color of the carpet and, man, the congregational voting. And it was like all sorts of crazy stuff that were happening. I was in one meeting one time where they got mad because the pastor wanted to change the name of the church from the, the Apostolic Tabernacle of Pentecostal Holiness into something practical like the Family Life Church. And then it was... Um, you know, all these things and all these divisions, and even in Corinthians, Paul talks about we demonstrate our carnality and our lack of love when we find reasons to divide and stay divided. And so, jumping down, it is not glad, love's not easily angered or resentful. So you understand that when Paul made the statement that we have to be strengthened with might in our inner man so that we can comprehend what is the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God, understand this, that we cannot even begin to comprehend God's love without first being strengthened in our inner man. That that to come to a place where we can love well, we have to actually encounter the love to a degree where Paul also said that what the first thing that should be happening in the life of the believer, in my opinion, is that you get rooted and grounded in the love of God. That before you get pushed anywhere else, you get planted deep in the soil of God's love. That at the heart of every dilemma that at the heart of every situation in a believer's life, somewhere is the root of the lack of love in our life. And so to understand this, that love isn't glad about injustice, and I made this comment earlier, and I'm going to say it here again today. Now let's think about that for a minute. Love does not, is not glad about injustice. So understand that our affection is one of the greatest determinations or the greatest mirrors that we can look into that shows us what the quality of our love is. So I can't claim that I'm loving well when I'm entertained by the thing that God hates. I can't stand out in front of the abortion clinic with a, with a red tape over my mouth and go watch Hollywood movies that celebrate abortion. So love isn't, and I'm not making the case about good and wholesome. I'm telling you that love does not like injustice and love isn't entertained by it. All right, so the last thing, and this is the one I want to, the last two that I really want to talk about is love bears all things. And this is powerful because what the connotation of this is is it's like a roof 
that covers the house. In other words, love protects and provides shelter. It shields, guards, conceals, and safeguards people from exposure. First Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers, but it doesn't what? Tolerate. So I'm not saying for a minute, and neither is Paul, that you should, that you should cover the sins of predators. Right? That we're not in the midst of covering, we're not meant to excuse or to hide or any of that while people publicly are violating and, and, and exhibiting predatory behavior on the body at any level. So love doesn't cover that, but while you're growing, while you're weak, in your weakness, Jeremiah talked about Sunday, in your weakness, love reaches out and covers you until you're strong. Love takes the place of understanding that there are the weak among us and we take responsibility for that and don't pass it off to someone else. We become the roof over their life. Love believes all things. Comes from the Greek word pistis, to believe in something or someone to trust. This is the opposite of skepticism or cynicism. Believe it or not, there is no such thing as the gift of suspicion. And most of what people are calling the discerning of spirits is nothing more than carnal suspicion. And you know how you know that? Because when love doesn't believe the best, it postures your heart to believe the worst and you justify it through a spiritual gift. So what I'm saying to you is that love doesn't give us an opportunity to justify why we're cynical or why we are, at worst, why we are um, suspicious of people. And so, you know, it's interesting. I'm skeptical. My wife would often tell me, you're such a pessimist. And what she's really saying is, Derek, work on your love because love believes the best, not the worst. And so understand that my heart postured in love will always reach out in faith, but where the absence of love is, I can't really have true faith. It's just something I generate. That's where we got faith wrong is because faith re is able to reach out and see the unseen, and it's a substance because, faith bring, or because love brings the substance that's required to power it. And so, thinking this through, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And so I'll close with this. Tolerate to accept without interfering. Toleration is the same thing as avoiding. We're going to talk about that next week in Conflicts Resolution. If you don't know me by now, I can't stand avoidance because avoidance is really saying, I give up, I'm done trying to resolve I'm just going to step away and I'm going to avoid it altogether. Avoidance is the only conflict resolution technique that can never actually resolve the conflict. And so then avoidance really is, if you look up the word in the dictionary, it's the opposite of the word confront. If you look up avoid, the opposite of the word avoid is confront. And so if we look up the word confront, we see that it comes from a Latin word, con, which means with, and Franz, face. And so the Cambridge English Dictionary, 
says that really confrontation is just about dealing with a difficult problem, situation, or person. Now let me ask you a question. Based on that definition, is it possible for me to resolve a conflict by text message? Is it possible for me to resolve a conflict on Facebook? So you see, the nature of confrontation means simply getting face-to-face and working it out. There's no emotional anger. There's no um, you know, heavy manipulation and coming out you and making you feel belittled or victimized or anything. It's just simply being willing to go talk about an issue. Now, where we really get this wrong, and we're going to talk about this next week, is in kingdom culture, that kind of culture that should be driving our relationships. Have you noticed, when is the last time that someone had an issue with you and came directly to you without going to church leadership first? Do you understand if your go-to is to an elder first, you are not following biblical protocol? That if you go to an elder to talk about me, or if I go to an elder to talk about you, or if you go to an elder to talk about another elder, without first having talked through with that person, you are circumventing a biblical protocol, and you know what the result of that is? You ready? It's a passive people who would rather avoid and not confront. So again, every time I circumvent a biblical kingdom culture protocol like how to deal with conflict, then what I do is rob myself of the blessing that I could get by following God's commandment. So again, we have to learn how to live in relationship and love with other people, and we have to apply Scripture and walk that out, and we lose that in consumer culture when we stop living kingdom culture. Lastly, 1 Corinthians is a confrontational letter, so Paul wasn't tolerating or avoiding. And so my last comment there is that we are called to patience, and patience is not toleration. All right, so I know it's late, and I'm going to pray. And I hope that this has been really helpful to you, and if you guys will allow me, I'll stay around and hang out. So do we have about 10 minutes to ask questions or anything, David? Or am I running the nursery people going to get mad at me? Okay, all right. Who's got a question? Anybody at all? Now, the Maranatha class, they, man, they sent me on the run, man. They were wrestling hard. So I'm hoping you guys aren't as difficult. Anybody got a question or comment at all? If not, I'll pray. Any, anything I said that might have been confusing, especially because I don't want to leave you with the wrong thought. Anything I need to clear up? Yeah. Oh, no? Okay. So what happens with me is, is after about maybe, my husband's a karate lifter, so after about maybe 30 minutes of the stuff, I get frustrated. So what I'm asking you is, so what does that look like for me, you know, to me, to uh, biblically engage in resolving the problem? Okay. So that's two things, and we actually are going to cover that really in depth. So, 
But I'll tell you two things right off the bat. There's what's happening in you and how you respond to the other person. What we have to learn how to do that in conflict, what makes conflict so hard is it generates a lot of negative emotional energy. And so my first, my first thought is, do I want to vent and do I want to use my emotional energy in an unproductive way? Because if I don't get rid of the emotional energy, I'm not problem solving, nor do I want to. So conflict is about coming together to solve a problem and come to a solution. And when negative emotional energy, like just going around in circles and getting passed around and never getting anywhere, if I let that overtake me and hijack me, that I'm not going to be at a point where I can solve problems anymore. And my negative emotional energy works against resolving. So, again, you got, well, you got to channel it and direct it. Yep. Right. Right. But now I would say, though, that there are times, and you guys agree with this, right, that if they make you really mad, it's okay to be rude, though, right? <laughs> right. So love is not rude. What exception to that is there? No exception, right? So again, I can use the posture of my heart to gauge the maturity of my love, and that's what I want to do. So none of us are perfect. Listen, I get mad just like the rest of us. I'm not like all unicorns and rainbows and floating on clouds. My wife will tell you that. But what I'm learning how to do is channel my frustration when I get frustrated and, and not allow that to put me into something that's unproductive that I'm going to regret. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, all right. What about when you're treated unjustly and somebody lies about you? Now, this is um, a couple things that I want to encourage you about. What you don't want to become is the reason why that lie was true. Think about that. So what you have to realize is that, again, when I, when I find myself in a defensive posture and I feel like I have to defend I'm already on shaky ground, right? And here's why I'm going to say that. Should I try to correct the lie? Maybe. I can't tell you that for sure because I think the situation would kind of de determine that. But here's what I am going to tell you. If I have to explain myself to you and you don't know me well enough and can't believe the best of me, I'm probably not going to change your mind anyway. Because I simply can't get you to believe something if you're unwilling to believe it and give me the benefit of the doubt. That's why love believes the best. The posture of my heart is to believe the best of you first, not believe the worst of you in suspicion. Yes, Brother Cliff. Yep, speak in that mic. That's exactly right. 
You know why I get angry? It's because I want to control and I can't. Most of the reason. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Right. How do you discern what again? Here, okay. True. So how do you discern if that's in you that you need to, to, to adjust something that's in you, spiritually speaking, or if it's like who it's operating through? Yeah. Or if it's just a whole puzzle being kind of like the matrix or something. Yeah. So now in marriage counseling, when I do marriage counseling, one of the things I equip couples with is to have a conflict resolution plan. And what that means is Understand ahead of time, knowing where you are properly, self-assessing your anger and temper level. And if you can't get emotional control, you already have it worked out ahead of time that you and your spouse are going to walk away until you get rid of the negative emotional energy. Because the moment that becomes the dominant thing, you've stopped communicating. So the best way to handle a situation like that is that the people that you're in relationship with know ahead of time that when you call a timeout, you mean it. Because you need to get rid of, and they're giving you an ability and making concession for your weakness. Now I want to say one thing. The Bible says that we should consider others better than ourselves. You know why we argue? It's because we don't. So... I don't think that that scripture is saying others are better than you. It's saying the posture of my heart should posture toward you in such a way that you are better and I can only, I can only argue with and devalue people because I really in my heart believe I'm better than they are. So again, do I need to be right or do I need to love well? Yes. Okay. And it seems often like with customers sometimes, as a believer, I mean, I'm trying to carry myself in an excellence and do things in an excellence. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's almost like you could sense the situation turning. Like I had a customer one time, and you're like, well, that didn't, that didn't what, what I pictured in my mind. Well, we verbalized and it's in the contract what, what you expected, so I didn't meet those standards. So I'm the guy who will just write the check back. You know, be blessed, keep that one for free. We'll, we'll dock that from the final bill. 
But, uh, but how, do you, how do you not allow the enemy to, to work through people to manipulate you and take from you and steal from you? Okay, so I want to answer that sort of directly. But I want to tell you that our discussion on emotional intelligence is only part of the issue. Where you need other skills is you need to learn how to ask strategic questions. So you need to learn how to leverage when to ask the right types of questions to maneuver people in situations. So it's not manipulation. It's taking your hostility and channeling that into something that's productive. So you can learn how to do that in a way that, that enables you to keep communicating. So the first thing that I would say to you is that, that emotional intelligence and the skills that I'm talking about really lie in reflective listening. So when I'm listening in a conversation, I'm actually listening to the root of what you're saying. I'm trying to find out exactly why you're feeling the way you are, and I really do want to know your perspective. I'm not looking for that next opportunity for you to pause so I can tell you 50 things that I really want you to know and can care less about what you're trying to tell me, right? right, right. right? So and when it comes to situations, again, even as believers, this is another thing where we have a whole set of kingdom protocols that govern how we should respond to each other in that way. And so what I would say to do is I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. And what I always lean on is what do I believe the Holy Spirit's telling me right in the moment? And he never contradicts love. And what, what he does do is tell me how to properly apply it in the moment. So I know that's a vague answer, but yep. And then, hey, and when I miss it, and I do, I repent. And sometimes that means going to the person, right? Yes, sir. Anybody else back there? Who else? Take maybe one or two more. Is that it? I was over here. What's oh. <laughs> Randy, do you have anything, sir? Yeah, I thought you raised your hand earlier. Okay. All right, Proverbs. Come on. So what Randy said was, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. So in other words, uh, as much as it depends upon me, I should live at peace with all men. I should go out of my way for peace. I should absolutely go out of my way even to the point where I'm willing to lose. Right? All right, so Father, here's what I want to challenge you with tonight. No altar call, none of that. But can I challenge you with one thing? I want to challenge you and I believe it's the Holy Spirit that's challenging you. And I want to call you to a higher level of love in this body. I want to challenge every person in this room to ask the Lord to help you love this body well. I want to ask you to give, I want you to ask the Lord to give you love assignments where you practically show the love of God to the people that you go to church with. I want to encourage you to show hospitality and invite them to your house. And I want you, I want to encourage you, can't control you, not trying to control you, but I want to encourage you to really begin to see that the greatest ministry all of us have is loving well. And the body of Christ should feel and be loved well. We are that extension. And so tonight, the greatest thing that could ever happen is that you not listen to a lot of neat stuff that I talked about, but that you walk out of here purposed in your heart how you love the people that you go to church with well, the body, the body of Christ. So Father, in Jesus' name.
Man, I say we pray and believe and ask that you release a revelation of the love of God in a practical way. That we wouldn't just be hearers about it. That you would purpose and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you would empower us to begin to love this body well. To love everyone around us well. Especially the brethren, Lord. That we should treat and, and seek to, in every area of our lives in this body, seek to practically love one another well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would begin such a movement by your Spirit that, that, that every single person in this body would own their place in this family and own their place in building one another up. And as Ephesians talks about growing the body and building itself up in love, that the body, ministering to the body, so, Lord, we thank you that these next few weeks and months that you would send such a wave of the love of God that you would cause people to dream about it, that you would speak to them in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you, would, that you would show it to us and minister to us in our hearts, in the Word, and that, Lord, that you would give us all opportunities to love well and to take those moments to be, to be the love of God to other people. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.